0: Hey everybody jonathan door with you once again welcome back to the supply side podcast great as always to have the pleasure of your company Really excited to be bringing you this wonderful interview today. Uh, Doug Noland was gracious. He made time to to be with us and I really appreciated it because we were able to record it, not at the usual 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. Australian time, but a little bit later in my day, which was great. Doug joins us all the way over from Eugene, Oregon, and uh, I just really enjoyed this conversation. He's an absolute gentleman. He's a, a true lover of macroeconomics and he's someone that I think cares deeply about people and about how political economy and macroeconomics can affect so many people around the world. As you're going to hear in, uh, in this discussion, his level of analysis and understanding is truly extraordinary. So before we jump in, let me give you a little bit of background here on Doug Noland. So out of college, he went straight to Price Waterhouse as a CPA. He graduated summa cum laude from the University of Oregon and then went on to get his MBA at Indiana University. So Doug's career began as a treasury analyst at Toyota's US headquarters, which he shares was crucial for him because it gave him a really up close look at uh, the Japanese bubble period, and of course the 87 stock market crash, a kind of front row seat, if you will. Late 1989, he becomes a trader for a short based hedge fund in San Francisco later in the 90s doug works at uh, fleckenstein capital and east shore partners and then in 1999 began a 16-year association with prudent bear working as a strategist and portfolio manager until those bear funds were sold in december 08 and what else can we tell you? He's currently with McIlvaney Wealth Management. We're going to give you some links to that at the end of the show. But many of you would know him, of course, from his important work at Credit Bubble Bulletin. He's been writing that Credit Bubble Bulletin since 1999. You'll also, of course, have come across him on other websites like Dollar Collapse. But it's an extraordinary CV. It's an extraordinary background and in preparation for our discussion, I was going back through some of his archive and the level of analysis and insight that Doug brings us in the uh, things like the monthly report, the monthly summary on Credit Bubble Bulletin is really something that if you're not across it, you need to go and check it out at Credit Bubble Bulletin because it's a great source of information. All right, last couple of things. Uh, we got some housekeeping for you. We had some internet glitches. We've normally, uh, pretty good, we had some, a couple of issues here and there. If at any point you notice a little uh, glitch or you notice a, a tiny break in the flow of the communication, we had a couple of little internet bits here and there, but we've patched it back together really well and uh, and as we begin this interview i doug and i were actually discussing his profound love for the oregon ducks so as this interview begins you'll hear us having a laugh about it got cut off at the very start but you'll hear us uh, having a laugh about doug's love for the oregon ducks all right that's it from me that's a long intro but we're going to talk about a lot of important stuff so sit back relax and enjoy this really wonderful discussion with doug noland to see how they use that canned audience noise. Have you noticed that? (laughs) It's funny what we do as humans. We just have to convince ourselves that things are normal. But great to have you with us. And I wanted to... You wrote something magnificent back on March the 12th in your weekly commentary. But related to that, I also want to give you another quote from two of the greatest social and political commentators of, of recent time, Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard who in my favourite song of theirs, which my wife says I'm not allowed to sing around the children, they have these lines, and I think these might relate to global markets. They say, it's all going to pot, whether we like it or not, the best I can tell, the world's going to hell, and we're sure going to miss it a lot. Now, <laughs> I, I don't know whether they're real political economists, but can you give us the top-level view? I'm going to go through a few of your quotes in a minute, but your thesis is that we're basically looking at the terminal phase of the greatest credit bubble in history. Give us the top-level view. And this goes back a ways.
1: I actually started my blog and that's before they were even called blogs back in 1999. Yeah. I was convinced that we had fundamentally changed finance, we had fundamentally changed policy making, we had created this unstable market-based finance, and we had enormous credit growth and that we were in a huge bubble. When I started my blog in 1999, I I titled it the Credit Bubble Bulletin, just to have something a little kind of different. I didn't expect the bubble to be in the title for long. I thought it would be the bubble, or the credit bulletin. But here we are, over 20 years later, and unfortunately, from my point of view, this has followed the absolute worst case scenario. I thought the bubble burst in 2000, and then in April of 2002, I started warning about the unfolding mortgage finance bubble because we were having double digit mortgage credit growth. The Fed specifically was targeting mortgage credit to use to reflate uh, system credit to reflate the economy. I followed that chronicled the mortgage finance bubble for five, seven, eight years. Uh, Then when the mortgage finance bubble blew up in 2008, again, I thought the bubble had finally collapsed And I believe it was March of 2009, I began warning about the potential for an unfolding global government finance bubble. And that's a bubble financed as the title by government finance, that's government debt, that's central bank credit. And now we're 11 years into that, 12 years into that. I can't believe the excesses. And I call it a terminal phase because in, at the end of a bubble, things go a little nuts. You, you have the monetary disorder, you have the speculation, the misallocation of resources, etc., And the system can really self-destruct. And I often use the example of Japan after World War II did, did phenomenal things for a few decades and then blew up their credit system in three and a half years of a bubble. The problem with the global government finance bubble is there are really no constraints on it. As we've seen, there's no constraints on central bank balance sheets, no constraints on the amount of government debt. And from my perspective, it's just running completely out of control at this point.
0: I've got so many questions on that. My brain just exploded listening to you. I'm going to try and ask you two quick questions on that. The first is yesterday I was reading Thomas Sowell's Basic Economics, As I've said in previous episodes, I had the worst economics teacher in history in high school. So I keep saying to my wife, I'm starting this 30 years behind the curve. And so I'm reading Thomas Sowell's basic economics and he makes the point early on that he doesn't see maliciousness or bad actors necessarily in some of these decisions, he says when government gets involved, they're trying to fix things. They don't act maliciously. So my first question is when you look at what's unfolding. Is it simply a case of just an initial desire to backstop markets and keep things ticking along that has just gone crazy? Do you think there's some kind of deliberate transfer of wealth happening? And the second question, if you can hold them both in your mind is, is this credit bubble simply different by degree? Is it simply that the numbers involved are so big or is it that it's a global contagion that there's such an interconnectedness that hasn't been there before? So. Is this an accident? Is it deliberate? And talk to us about the scale involved.
1: Okay. Excellent questions. And do I get any easy questions along
0: (laughs) 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 the way? Hopefully I'll We (laughs) talked about the Oregon Ducks at the start. Oh, there we go. Thank
1: you. Okay. So let me see if I can get through this. For me, it goes back to Alan Greenspan and he Uh, free market guy going back to Ayn Rand, and he saw this evolution to market-based finance. Right, We went from having the old system of bank loans to now all of a sudden we had asset-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities, junk bonds, the agencies. We had securitizations. In 1990, we went into a major crisis, an economic downturn here. The banking system was in trouble. There were even concerns that Citigroup was going to fail. I think Alan Greenspan saw the opportunity to help this market-based finance along, to help the economy get through this difficult period where the banking system was severely impaired. So I think it started innocently enough, and I think it got away from them. You will recall there was a major bond market bubble, 1992, 1993, that blew up in 1994, and then you had Mexico blow up in the end of 94 into 1995, Then you had Southeast Asia, uh, their bubbles blow up, 97. Then you get into 1998 and you have uh, long-term capital management. You have LTCM. So they're fighting fires like crazy. On the one hand, this unstable market-based finance, the hedge fund leverage, all the speculation, these bubbles are blowing up all over the world. So there's plenty of evidence that this new finance is unstable. But I think Greenspan felt, authorities felt they had no choice at that time but to press this, to to press loose financial conditions, low rates, to use this finance to to get through the problems. And then when 1999 came along with the mania and technology, and then that bubble burst. And then I think at that point, they were very concerned. I think they thought the big bubble would burst too. So then I think the mortgage finance just got completely away from them. I think it just got completely away. I think they thought in their mind, okay, we can stimulate a little mortgage finance and it'll help the system. And once it got going, they could not control it. And then it was just a panic in 08. So I don't see maliciousness, but I do see ineptness, recklessness of not being able to get a hold of this. Yeah, so 2011 comes along and they announced their exit strategy where they're going to pull back some of their stimulus. They had a trillion dollars worth of stimulus. They doubled the uh, Fed's balance sheet in the response to the 08 crisis. And I wrote at the time in in my bulletin that there'll be no exit. I titled it no exit, but I had no idea. Instead of, there, there was no exit, but they doubled their balance sheet again over the next few years. And I think that was, the, that was a big problem. They, that was a non-crisis environment. They doubled their balance sheet and they've been having to face bubbles ever since. And then you know, there's a lot of talk about the crisis response to COVID, but keep in mind that the Fed started QE again in September of 2019. Mm-hmm. With the unemployment rate at 50-year lows and stocks at all-time highs, I think that was a huge mistake. And I think that was one of the reasons why the markets buckled so much in March when the COVID stress unfolded is because it, it, they had already you know, grossly inflated the bubble. And because of COVID, now they're just, they're just trapped. And they've you know, increased their balance sheet by over you know, almost $3.3 trillion over the past year so uh, yeah.
0: i like you made a comment where did i read this this was an uh, dollar collapse an article you wrote recently which i'll link to but you were talking about comments from jerome powell and you said i quote hope is not a strategy <laughs> i like
1: well, that yeah and you know jonathan you're humble about your economic knowledge economic history and the problem with inflationism and that's what i call this this is inflationism. now the fed for 30 years now they just want to continue to inflate credit and continue to inflate money. And the problem is once you go down that path, it is extremely difficult to get off. And, and that's where we are. They, how do they get off that now? How do they go back to a traditional monetary policy? How do they rein in QE? And I don't think they can. And, and Jonathan, to follow up on one of the questions you ask, is this different in degree, this oh, yeah. bubble? And I've been warning, the global government finance bubble is much different. And let's think in terms, if you have a bubble, because bubbles are always inflated by some underlying credit, underlying monetary growth. That feeds a self-reinforcing inflation. Let's say you have a bubble in junk bonds, okay? That, That can cause a little bit of havoc and some excess but it's not going to become deeply systemic because you'll get to a point in the bubble where people will say, wait a minute, (laughs) I've got all the junk bonds I want here, I'm not taking any more." So that'll keep it from going on for too long and if it doesn't go on for year after year, it doesn't become as deeply systemic, it doesn't affect economic financial structure. Money, oh, that's different. That's different in degree because people have insatiable demand for money. You give them mm. money, they'll take as much as you give them. They're, you know, they throw it out in the marketplace; there'll be a home for it. It's a very dangerous type of credit. We saw that during the mortgage finance bubble period, where there's talk about subprime and these other things. But the root of the problem was transforming risky loans into a safe money-like instruments mm. with insatiable demand. Those are your dangerous bubbles. We're to the heart of finance, global finance right now. We're at the heart of money and credit, central bank credit, government debt, right? That's where we are, insatiable demand for both. So this is by far the most dangerous bubble. Not only is it dangerous because it can go on and on as we're watching, but it also is very dangerous because at the end of the day, if you have a crisis of confidence in junk bonds, you're gonna get through it. If you have a mm. crisis of confidence in central bank credit and government debt, you got one heck of a problem. And that's clearly the direction we're going right now. And that's one of the reasons I'm just extremely concerned. And I, I just can't believe how this has unfolded. It, it's, yeah. you know, I've, as an analyst of bubbles, I'm just in awe of what, of what we've watched, especially over the past year.
0: I keep, but my wife keeps kicking me under the table at dinner parties because I've become that guy that's like trying to tell people. I've got that sort of one conversation. She's like, enough, all right? But I was thinking this morning. You still get invited? I don't know why,
1: but I don't get invited out anymore.
0: Gosh, I, I do a lot of bike riding and I was riding with a guy who's a private wealth manager and i was trying to talk to him about gold because i'm a big gold guy and he's he's just talking about equity markets and where they're headed and it was just it wasn't much of a conversation it was just he was there for the bull ride and on current numbers he's doing okay a couple of things listening to you we talked about whether the strategy was malicious i, I always like to quote the stats that the federal reserve system across the i think it's the 12 federal reserves in the us has just over 1500 PhDs on staff. So across that entire network, they have this vast plethora of classical economics PhDs, but obviously behavioral economics. And it's always interesting that we have that nexus of academic brain power, but we still seem to be going further and further down this path. So what I want to understand Where does MMT end? I I haven't got an answer for that recently. Like, how does an MMT person push back on your thesis? They can just say, we'll do UBI, we'll just pay people to stay home, we'll just keep printing. Where does that break down? When does the merry-go-round actually stop? What causes that collapse? Okay.
1: I believe there's a lot of focus today, of course, on MMT and, and the Fed and government debt and how... There's no end to this, right? This is like a new era of finance. What I would say is the key right now is it's still market-based finance that is inflating bubbles. It's still all the securitizations and the equity issuance and all the corporate debt and the agency debt. I think it ends where, where there's a serious crisis of confidence in this debt. You can't just double the amount of debt and increase its price and believe that's going to last forever. Right. At some point, if you continue to increase the quantity of this debt, so much of this is non-productive debt. There's not real economic wealth producing capacity behind it. You're just setting the stage for a crisis of confidence. So I think, how does it end? All of a sudden, the markets say, wait a minute, we we don't want another three trillion dollar deficit or three trillion dollar deficit, another four trillion dollar deficit. And at some point and we're seeing hints of it in the bond market. We're seeing some nervousness. But all of a sudden, I think things change dramatically. And this could happen in a week. It could happen in months. But all of a sudden, the bond market starts to go up. Chairman Powell and the Fed continue their dovish talk. They even talk twist. They even talk, okay, we can increase more purchases. And the bond market continues to sell off. Mm. And all of a sudden, it'll be the 1994 scenario where the Fed all of a sudden is on their heels saying, "Uh uh-oh, what do we say? Does the bond market want us to hear want to hear loose dovish talk or do they want to hear we're going to start tightening up and focus on inflation? And I think that difference in the market changes everything. I think it changes everything.
0: And on that, this was something uh, it's a this is a quote from you that I want you to speak to for me if you could. This was on dollar collapse. It's a slightly longer quote, and on the video I'll put this up for people, but I think you've said something really important here, if I get you to speak to this. You said, markets have just begun the process of coming to terms with a harsh reality. There are myriad historic speculative bubbles and credit bubbles, and central bankers are definitely not in control of the process. They have attained a semblance of control only through monstrous monetary inflation. And yet this week demonstrated it is no longer so easy to manipulate market behavior with the usual pedestrian dovish comments. Markets now scoff at the notion of the Fed anchoring inflation expectations at a particular level. And finally, you say, moreover, after trillions of liquidity injections, central bankers are clearly not in command of marketplace liquidity. Is this? Can you help us understand that in terms of what you've already mentioned about bond markets? Sure. And, and
1: I'll back up a little bit again, start from way back. I didn't emphasize enough. When we changed from the old bank loan system, where you had these boring bank loans on the banking system, that was driving credit growth, driving the economy. When we changed to a market-based system, we basically encouraged leverage, speculative leverage. That's, that's when the hay, the hedge funds came into their heyday. Because all of a sudden, why not borrow with Greenspan? You could borrow at 3%, lend at 6% to the government, and and make a huge spread on that, and with leverage, you could make a phenomenal amount of money. And it worked fine. The the Fed was happy with it until they had a problem uh, in 1994. But the problem is if you encourage speculative leverage, you're selling your soul to the devil as a central Mm -hmm. banker, right? You're selling your soul because you're in a situation where, and we saw it again in March with COVID, where all of a sudden you're in a big speculative deleveraging They have no choice. They feel they have no choice but to go out and aggressively expand their balance sheet. They expanded Mm. it. They announced they were going to expand it by a trillion. And the market said, that ain't going to be enough. And the market kept selling off a year ago, March, on those initial emergency measures by the Fed. So the Fed just kept increasing and increasing the size of these emergency facilities and, and their QE. Not only did they stop the de-risking, deleveraging, the implosion that started, they in, they basically incited more speculative leverage. And here's where we've been over the past year. We've I think we've had enormous amounts of speculative leverage. It's turned into a mania in equities and the SPACs and I would argue the cryptocurrencies and you know, collectible, we've seen these manias everywhere because of this unprecedented monetary inflation. So there's money out there for everything. And the problem is today, they can't get out of this because this works, it appears to work miraculously as long as the hedge funds are putting on leverage because that creates new additional liquidity in the marketplace, which leads to higher securities prices, which leads to more speculation, more speculative leverage, and it's a self-reinforcing bubble. But I've argued it does not. It does not work in reverse. If you get into a speculative deleveraging, all of a sudden markets are illiquid and, and this thing turns sour quickly. We saw it again in March, and I would argue the amount of speculation, leverage, the manias have grown significantly over the past year. So during the next de risking, deleveraging, how big does the Fed's balance sheet have to get? And while I'm rambling a bit here, Jonathan, see, I, I was arguing. And this is way pre-COVID. Over the last few years, I was arguing the next crisis, the Fed's balance sheet would have to get to $10 trillion. Because I saw if you get into a major speculative de-risking deleveraging, meaning the hedge funds are liquidating leveraged positions, there's no other buyer. The central banks, the Fed, they're the buyer first and last resort. So they have to expand their balance sheet to accommodate de-risking deleveraging. If they don't, the system implodes, okay? How big do, is a balance sheet going to get? The next de-risking deleveraging, because it's going to be at eight trillion before long. Mm. But I always thought that they would get to ten trillion in accommodating a major de-risking deleveraging. Well, no, we haven't had that yet. So they're at 8 trillion. And is it gonna grow under the 5 trillion, 6, 7 trillion during the next serious de-risking deleveraging? So all of a sudden you can build a scenario where the Fed's balance sheet is completely out of control here. Completely out of control. And again, it works miraculously as long as asset prices are going up. But the more speculative it gets, the more leverage uh, you have in the system. You inevitably have these de-risking deleveraging periods. You you can't have a speculative mania forever. And the next downturn you've got a very serious problem. And I think that is when the markets may question how sound is this central bank credit? How sound is government debt in this scenario where policymakers have no alternative but to keep inflating, keep this monetary inflation going.
0: Well it's only 1029 here in the morning, but the, the desire to go and open a bottle of Lagavulin single malt whiskey is getting stronger by the second. So I want to ask you, like, there was some, just on the scale of that speculative mania, there was a, something I really liked in your March 12 uh, weekly commentary, and I said I'll link to that. Something really jumped out at me was increased asset-based lending, but less genuine productive business lending. That really struck me that it is, is, does that mean that basically huge numbers of people are increasing margins, they're trying to get into uh, hard assets, real estate as well. But the productive kind of lending that used to be a, an historical norm for business is decreasing? Is that the, the essential point? Yeah. And, you know, I've gone through, the Fed has
1: some wonderful Wonderful data. Quarterly, the Z1 flow of funds data. I've been yeah. doing my quarterly analysis for, geez, 20 years in this. And I, I love it. I get excited when it comes out. Although it's a lot of data to get through, but it's, it's neat. And yeah. I was making the point going through the, and this was the Q4, fourth quarter data. Yeah. And you, you had this incredible credit growth. And I think the whole system, total system, it's called non-financial debt. It grew at, I think about was $6.7 trillion, trillion, more than yeah. double we've ever had in a year. And I made the point that you can see the rapid, or the unbelievable growth, four and a half trillion dollars of the treasury, gro- treasury debt growth for the year. And you can see the growth in agency debt, Fannie and Freddie, the GSEs. Yeah. And you can see uh, securitizations, all of this. But then if you look at bank loans, they hardly even grow. Yeah. The, the loans that did grow is interesting. The, the loans on the balance sheets of the security broker dealers. Yeah. Those grew dramatically. It was huge growth. <laughs> but they're lending, it's margin debt, they're lending for people to buy securities. And that's, that, that's part of the scenario. And I see a lot of parallels to the late 20s, the roaring 20s period, and especially 1929, where you had that huge divergence between what was going on in real economies and what was going on in financial speculation. And you had this situation where all at that point, all the credit's gravitating towards inflating asset prices, right? Why does liquidity want to go into corporations when they're fighting deteriorating profit margins and things? Hey, let's play the the asset inflation game, and that's where we are now. You have this enormous amount of credit; it's non or it's non-productive, and way too much of it is just going directed right into uh, the the stock market mania and, and corporate debt and
0: in these other markets very dysfunctional bubble type of an environment can you help me understand something in terms of currency creation the scale of currency creation you know, often people just say it's inflationary it's inflationary something Jim Rickard said recently really stuck with me and I don't I'd love to hear your thoughts on it his thesis is that currency creation isn't by nature inflationary his definition of inflation is to do with the velocity of money so his thesis is that we don't face in hyperinflation just because huge amounts of currency be imprinted being printed it's whether that money makes it into the real economy and and whether it's chasing less you know productive resources do you have any thoughts on that is it if that money is simply printed but just sits on you know, financial balance sheets, but doesn't make it to the real economy. Can you talk to us about that, about the inflationary outlook on that sort of side? Sure. And that this
1: is one of these peel off a layer and you find more and more complexity. Currency, and just for the terminology, a lot of times currency, we're, we're talking about currency that's the Fed creates banknotes, $50, $20 bills, et cetera. Let's ignore that because that number is not big enough to, to have a big impact. What matters is credit. And this goes, this is the old Austrian school thinking here that I definitely subscribe to the old Austrians credit. If you create credit that these are new instruments, new IOUs, you create them out of thin air. That's the old Murray Rothbard. You can, and what's important about it, the new credit creates purchasing power. Okay. So if you create new credit, you're going to have increases in prices somewhere because you're creating new purchasing power. This whole 30, or th- yeah, 30 years of changing finance to, to you know, market-based finance, so much of the credit now is directed right into asset prices. And that's why we have this huge inflation in asset prices. So we have a huge inflation here. Do we have a huge consumer price inflation? No, not yet. Why not? Maybe it has something to do with the fact we fundamentally changed output over the past 23 years, right? We used to not have digital downloads, the digitalization of everything. Right now, I argue there's unlimited supply of things people can buy at the consumer level. Give people money, they can download, they can buy more movies online. There's whatever they want to do, they they can spend that money. So fundamentally, we've changed inflationary dynamics. For one, we're getting more asset price inflation because the nature of finances, we're driving that into asset prices. We're having so much more speculation and bubbles there. And in the real economy, we have infinite supply of things. And also we have the issue where this bubble is benefiting the wealthy so much more than the average person and the unfortunate. So many people haven't gained purchasing power, so they're not going to spend money and lead to higher consumer price inflation. So, I don't my framework is a lot different than that that the the money or the currency and the velocity. To me, that's the old model where you had so much currency in the banking system and and velocity would lead to credit growth. You'd use your money over and lead to credit growth. We now we just focus on the credit, ignore the currency. But I want to add, money again is critical. Not in the way it used to be for traditional inflation, but it is critical in perpetuating, prolonging this bubble, as I mentioned before, because money has insatiable demand. So right now we have enormous inflation of money. To me, money is something that people perceive as a safe liquid store of value, okay? So it's not currency, it it can be treasury bills, it can be an ETF. A lot of people believe they can send money to a to an ETF and its money. So we have enormous increases of money today, but it's fueling this asset bubble, not leading to you know consumer price inflation. Although I think things are shifting now. We're starting to see, I think, a key inflection point in inflation dynamics. For one, the whole world right now is expanding credit rapidly you're starting to see shortages of it could could be some food items semiconductors container ships you're seeing bottlenecks Mm. we're now doing wealth redistribution in the us that's going to funnel more purchasing power for consumer purchases so i i think things are really changing not to mention the fact that the fiscal deficits and monetary deficits or monetary qe the monetary inflation is completely out of control. So I think the bond market's looking at this and saying, okay, how does this play out over the coming years? And I think the bond market's getting nervous about inflation. But I also think the bond market, especially the Treasury market, they look at the Fed's balance sheet, they look at some of these things and they get nervous about inflation, but then they look at the stock market and they say, this is an out-of-control bubble and this is gonna burst and and we're not going to have to worry about inf- inflation after the stock market bubble bursts which is the way the bond market looked at things back in 07 when you know oil prices went to 145 dollars a barrel and the bond market said ah oh, we don't care about that look at the stock market you know we got a huge crisis in QE coming so that's what we're getting prepared for so there's some interesting dynamics right now in the bond market but it's definitely a, I, I think an infle- an inflection point in the nature of inflation dynamics
0: I Peter Schiff makes a good point about universal basic income at at the most basic level. He's like, you you pay people to stay at home. So less is obviously being produced, but most of them, many of them are being paid more to stay home than they were to work. So you've got less being produced, but more money chasing whatever is still being produced. So that, that has to be inflationary. So is, is the bond market where you look Uh, is it, was it, the canary in the coal mine, as we say, is the bond market? Where do you look to really try and pick when this gets truly terminal? Where do you look?
1: Yes, I look at the treasury market. I certainly follow the dollar. The dollar is an accident in the making here with this type of fiscal monetary policy, this kind of economic structure, this type of, you know, asset bubble environment. The dollar has some huge advantages or things that, that, that help it in that it, you know the, the euro has deep structural problems and you can go to the rmb and, and the Japanese yen and the emerging market currencies. You know, the, the dollar's a, a little bit of a more challenging analysis because all of a sudden, as we've seen even recently, if you have issues in the emerging markets, all of a sudden there's that safe haven bid to the dollar. But Jonathan, for me, and again, this is a global bubble. These markets are highly synchronized. The policy making approach is highly synchronized and that's government deficits and central bank policy. So I, I follow China very carefully. I follow the emerging markets very carefully because these bubbles, there, there are a lot of bubbles out there and you just don't know the sequencing. I think once one goes, the, it'll start at the periphery and then you'll have issues at the periphery and then you have de-risking, de You'll have a tightening of liquidity risk aversion. And then that starts to move towards the core. And I think we've started to see that in the emerging markets. But then I, I follow you know, China closely because that's one of history's just incredible bubbles over there. And that's a huge accident in the making also. So there's plenty of things to follow as an analyst of, of financial conditions and, and bubble dynamics these days.
0: Yeah, I listened to a recent interview that you gave with McIlvaney, and you're talking about the ostensibly command and control system of China. They basically told the banks to go out and lend domestically, right, significantly. So there was a huge amount of easy credit available in China, right?
1: Oh, China. I talked about the U.S. non-financial debt growth, right, last year credit in the U.S., grew double what it's ever, more than double what it's ever grown previously in a year. China, same thing. I think their number, they call it aggregate financing there, was five and a half trillion. The credit numbers are staggering. And a lot of people say, okay, they need to do this temporarily to get through the difficult period. But again, this is back to this theme that once you start inflationism, it's very difficult to, to, to get off of that. And that China right now, they go out and you create all this credit, you inflate not only your asset prices, and in China, their their home prices, their apartment prices are going up, that apartment bubble is even larger. The misallocation of resources, the distortions in, in pricing structure throughout the economy. It's just not like they can say, okay, we're going to go back to $2 trillion worth of credit growth instead of five, and then everything will start to normalize. No, and right now in China, Beijing has said as much. They want to try to normalize but they'll try to do it gradually, but that is not going to go smoothly. Uh, it's not going to go well. And they recognize and have said as much, they know there's bubbles globally. I think they look at the U.S. and they know there's a bubble here, and they've got a plan around that also. But I, these policymakers have a huge challenge now to try to keep this. On the one hand, they don't obviously, they, they don't want to implode the bubbles. But they can't just feed these manias either. So they got to try to find a balance, but I, I don't really think that balance exists. Yeah, and
0: I wanted to ask you back at the macro level of political economy again, I did my second master's in philosophical anthropology, and I did a lot of work around some of the impact of Freud in Western culture. and. I disagree with a lot, but one of the things that was interesting was this idea that the central motivations of human behavior are the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. So at the top level, are we dealing simply with this going back to Greenspan? that that nobody wants it to happen on their watch that it's the it's not so much even the pursuit of pleasure it's the avoidance of pain at the top level of policymaking that you don't want to be the one telling the president you've got to do a state of the union telling everybody that things are telling people the truth about how we're going to have to change things is it is that the ultimate dynamic that nobody wants at the top level wants to face the end of the music and and take that hard medicine Uh, Clearly,
1: that's the the politicians, right? They're going to kick that can every time. We expect more from our central bankers. And I think Jerome Powell, when he came in, I think his goal, his objective was to start letting markets stand on their own. He knew that the Fed had distorted the markets too much, had intervened too often, and he wanted to start backing away from that and the markets kicked his butt. The market said, no, you're not going to do that. Now it was the fourth quarter of 2018, and he, he he did his pivot so quickly. and at that point he was over. He, it wasn't going to work. He I think at that point he recognized, I, I can't. You know, it's not going to be possible to try to extricate the Fed from being, you know, the the guardian of the markets, to backstop the markets and all of that. I remember back to 2013 when Ben Bernanke came out and he made this comment where he said, we're prepared at the Fed to push back against any tightening of financial conditions. And I was shocked by this. No one else could, no one could care less. I've tried to tell people, hey, this is what he said, and who cares? Well, what he was saying was, This new system of finance, we don't worry about the banking system, we're just worried about the markets because the markets determine if financial conditions are loose or not. And he's basically saying, if there's even a hint of a bear market, we're coming in. Bear markets, nope. We're not doing bear markets anymore because bear markets, that that implies a tightening of financial conditions and we're just not, we're we're not doing that anymore. So at that point, and then Powell wanted to back away from that, couldn't, and now, All the Fed can do, I think, is just try to keep the system from imploding. And that sounds, it sounds over the top, but I really believe that. And to me, that's the only explanation for right now that Powell is so ultra dovish. And they're continuing with their 120 billion a month of QE in the face of a mania. In the face of a massive fiscal stimulus coming, the economy is recovering rapidly. Goldman now, with they're almost up at eight percent GDP growth forecast for twenty twenty one yet the feds just saying, nope we're not doing a thing, we're not doing a thing we're not even thinking of tapering and the only explanation is to me is he they don't want to face the music in in the markets and I, I hope that's not the case, but that that's just the way I look at it
0: it's like uh a- not russian roulette but what's that game where you we call a chicken over here where the last person to flinch it's just because it doesn't right. look like the markets are going to flinch in a hurry so let me ask you a couple other big things i wanted to ask you i want to talk a little bit about wealth transfer and morality in the sense of a lot of the social uh, turmoil that we're seeing may have its roots in some of what we're seeing here so This goes back to sort of Nathan Lewis, who's one of our first guests on talking about gold standards, how when you have a high taxes and unstable money and all sorts of disruption in political economy, you get social upheaval. Can you help us understand the wealth transfer aspect of what's happening, what I often call the evisceration of the middle class? So you get plenty of poor, but you can keep the poor on UBI so they'll keep voting and not burning the place down, and then you've got a subsection making enormous amounts of money. So my understanding is that the the wealthy get super wealthy here for a bunch of reasons, but one of them is that if you have the existing capital in surging markets, you leverage up and you make more. So help us understand the wealth transfer aspects of what's happening and help us understand the implications for political economy and social cohesion?
1: Easy question. Let's get back to bubbles, a little bubble theory. Bubbles are basically about the redistribution and the destruction of wealth. When you're in the middle of a bubble, you feel like, oh, you're creating all this wealth and and everybody feels better. During the bubble, it's in in everybody's best interest to to cooperate because the pie is getting better are bigger so we can all benefit by working together. So it's a period where it seems like wealth is growing, it seems like everybody's cooperating, everybody's doing well. But at the end of the day is not only the speculative bubble aspect, but you see that just resource misallocation, structural impairment, wealth lost in the real economy. When the bubble bursts, then all of a sudden you realize you lost all this wealth and you have a lot of innocent people that end up losing a lot in that environment. So, you have the people that lose, the, you get, you, the people that didn't benefit from the bubble because so much during the bubble, especially this, is it's directed towards inflating asset prices. So, the big part of the population that doesn't participate in that at all. They don't have the resources to invest in stocks, corporate credit, or whatever else. They're just trying to get by. So, they don't benefit. They get hit by some higher prices. They don't see their income grow. Here in the US, their income's not growing because the, a lot of the jobs went overseas. So, you're really damaging your economic structure, and you're setting the stage for a lot of social instability, and we're seeing that today. So as an analyst of Bubbles, what I'm seeing as far as the instability in the U.S., it breaks my heart, but it was inevitable. It was inevitable, and now you get this situation where Powell and the Fed, they talk about the the Black, the Hispanic unemployment rate, they're very, they're conscious of the inequality that's been created here. But their policies do they only make the wealth wealthy wealthier so the, the issue only gets worse the more they stimulate and the problem with bubbles too at the end of the day it's your middle class that really gets hurt because the lower class they don't have the resources to participate in the bubble so when the bubble bursts they don't lose a lot of assets they didn't make any during the bubble period but they didn't lose a lot the wealthy, they find a way to protect themselves. They're more sophisticated, they find a way, right? They're gonna find a way, they're gonna lose some money, but they're gonna protect themselves. It's the middle class that's so exposed to these bubble dynamics. And you see it now where the middle class is just throwing money at the markets, their, their pensions and everything else. When the bubble bursts, they're the ones that are really gonna get hurt. And it's your middle class, that's your stability, right? Your stability in, in, in your society. And we're already seeing the whole the Trump phenomena, the, the divisiveness. We're seeing all the telltale signs of a, of a really unhealthy social fabric here. And to me, it all goes back to unsound money and these bubbles. It, to me, it's clear, it's, but others don't see it as clearly. And that's the problem. And to me, it's immoral for the Fed to inflate bubbles. Mm-hmm. It's immoral and the fed can talk about all they they can talk about sta- stable prices and their 2% inflation mandate give me a break monetary disorder is what i call it all the price instability in the markets and all the speculation the bubbles this is terrible price instability monetary instability it will have a devastating impact on society it already has had a major impact when this bubble bursts though i i really fear for how this will unfold
0: yeah, gosh, I I, I listen to you, and I yeah, I would always say that growing up, I, I grew up in, in a relatively conservative political household, and this learning journey of the last year or two, and and meeting people like yourself and reading your work, I just had this idea that the adults were in control and markets were operating as they should, and this it's been confronting to to actually find myself becoming genuinely concerned with the justice and the injustice of a lot of what's happening. Let me ask you, Do you, when this unravels, do you see hyperinflation? Do you see deflation? Do you see some deflation, then hyperinflation? How do you think it plays out? I like to answer that by saying,
1: I have to wait, I have to wait and see how things start to unfold. I think a lot depends on the dollar. If the dollar, if we get into a dollar collapse, then that that will lead to a, a significant boost of inflation, increase the, the chances of a hyperinflationary scenario. But in the bursting bubble environment, you can have a lot of deflationary pressures also coming out of the asset markets. The big unknown is the Fed's balance sheet. Is it going to 20 trillion? And that's a reasonable question today. It's That's not a crazy question. Is the Fed's balance sheet going to 20 tr- trillion? Could federal debt be at 50 trillion by the end of the decade? I think they're trapped right now. And I fear that scenario where, you know, the electronic printing presses, they're not gonna be able to turn them down. So I think there's a, a significant risk of an inflationary surprise. I don't necessarily see the hyperinflation scenario because so much of this credit is market-based. And there's going to be major disruptions in that structure and that mechanism of credit growth, this market-based finance. But uh, could we get up to double-digit inflation? I I don't know why not. I I don't know why not.
0: Mm. I've got two major things I wanna do before we wrap up. One is I wanna ask you in a couple of moments about your thoughts on possible reestablishment of gold standard sound money. I also wanna ask you what people can do practically, what your thoughts are on that. But first, I always enjoy this question. I haven't done it for a while. I want you to imagine that the, your phone rings later this evening and it's the White House and um, President Biden's watched our interview today and he's been very impressed with, with your answers. And he says to you, you got a you got a blank check, ironically, to fix this problem, to fix this system. What do you think you would do if you had supreme executive authority to try and turn this titanic around what would you do i think this starts at at the federal
1: reserve i think it starts with central banking and keep in mind on this jonathan this is a huge experiment market-based finance this monetary policy structure this is all an experiment we've never had this in history right so to me, central bankers—they need to get back to traditional central banking. They need to to be much more conservative. No experimenting here. They need to rein in that balance sheet. They need to quit monkeying with the markets. They need to get interest rates off of zero, and none of that goes smoothly. But I'm sorry, it's is it the law of holes, right? The law of holes. Digging a hole, the first thing you've got to do, you got to stop digging. I am not counting on politicians to help us on this. I. They're going to do what we expect them to do, unfortunately. And right now, because of central banks, because of the Fed, Washington has a blank checkbook. Hmm. You never, ever want to give Washington a blank checkbook because they're gonna use it. And good luck trying to take it back from them. They gave them a blank checkbook. So they've gotta somehow let the bond market start to normalize, let the bond market start to discipline Washington again and that's the only way we can start to, to, to heal this system, because right now, it, the, the path we're on is going to lead to a crisis of confidence in finance, generally. And again, the heart of finance, the central banks and government debt. And that's a very bad place to be. Get monetary policy towards, at least meaningful, meaningfully moving towards normalization. Powell has already said, that ain't what they're thinking. They're not going there, so I'm stuck. When I get that phone call, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk to deaf ears, I think.
0: Again, coming back to what I'm trying to understand, is, that, is this why the bond market is so important? Because it's the one place that basically says this government debt is increasingly worthless and that signal is some kind of tipping point. Is that, what's ha- is that how it operates? Yeah,
1: Yeah. There's a lot of leverage, right? Speculative leverage, enormous amounts of leverage globally here in the U.S., corporate credit, treasuries, derivatives. Somehow we've got to get out of this system where we have all of this leverage. So we've got to let prices, securities prices, get back to reflecting supply and demand, the supply of new debt, the demand for that new debt. Part of this new financial structure that we've created, we used to have kind of a limited supply of money. So Henry Kaufman used to do his interest rate predictions every year. And basically he would figure out what the demand for debt was going to be, the demand for borrowing. He knew basically what the supply of finance was, and then he could do a supply and demand in in, say our interest rates going up or going down. Years ago, we threw that out the window. We have unlimited finance, leverage, all of this others. So there's no pricing mechanism in the bond market. It is completely broken down. No amount of borrowing, we saw this in mortgage finance, no amount of demand for mortgage credit led to higher mortgage rates they went down. Got you back. I think my internet said, Doug, you, that, you're talking too much. You're rambling too much. I got to cut probably, you off here. It's
0: probably the NSA. <laughs> it's probably the NSA or the FBI <laughs> chopping you off. But, but you were saying if we can't get the bond market right here. Yeah, if we can't get the, the bond market's what's
1: going to, it, it, it's going to regulate speculation. It's going to regulate credit creation. It's going to, be a major determinant of the resource allocation. So if we can't get the bond market, we've the system. There's no chance for stabilization. And right now, all, all we continue to do is feed the bubble. So that's you know, the bond market's got to get back to some semblance of a real market. And I'm hopeful, but it, these kind of adjustments don't come easy. And right now, nobody wants to take any pain. Nobody wants. Nobody's willing to take pain.
0: Yeah, that's it. And all right, so let's begin to wrap up. So I've come into this very late in my life and the basis of Supply Side just appealed to me because it was like the more people that are basically producing worthwhile and valuable goods and services, the better the society flourishes. And Nathan Lewis really drilled me on this idea of his magic formula, right? So Nathan's magic formula is low taxes, stable money, low taxes, stable money. Can you talk to me about a, what you think will replace this? So the global monetary system tends to reset roughly every 75 years. We're past that window now, post Bretton Woods, and the gold standard window clo- so the gold window closing. Do you see the reestablishment of a gold standard in the future? Can you see it? For years now, I've argued
1: that talk about a gold standard was basically a waste of time. I, I'm a huge fan of of gold. I'm a huge fan of the traditional gold standard, uh, gold monetary regime. I just don't see it because we have so much debt and so much money. I, I don't. I, I can't see how that how, how that can unfold. Could Russia or could individual economies decide to back their currency, their credit system with gold? They they could try. But as far as globally, I unfortunately I can't see it as much as I I wish I could. But again, the gold I'll say quickly, the gold standard worked because people believed in stable and sound money. They didn't want to do anything to impair sound money because they believed in this in in sound money and in the gold standard. It wasn't because gold the gold standard made everybody behave themselves. It is because they believed in in that the lending had to be sound and. You, know, you can't do the crazy things. You just can't print money. You can't have massive deficits and all these things today that we believe we can get away with. So there has to be a major change in thinking before we have the, uh, the psychological uh, framework to, to be able to take the pain and to, to institute something like that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And, I, I've been... Quickly, the, for me, the, the, you know, the markets have broken down because right now, no matter what market you're in, treasuries, corporate debt, equities, globally, they believe policymakers are backstopping the markets. So nobody has to think about risk. You don't have to think mm. about deficits. You don't have to think about speculation. You don't have to think about misallocation resources. You don't have to think about anything. You don't have to worry about risk because the central bankers are there. Capitalism is not going to work in that type of a, a system. That's yeah. a breakdown in the market system right there. Yeah. So... I argue I'm going to have to you know, spend the rest of my life trying to explain why the issue wasn't capitalism, the issue was unsound finance and, and policy making
0: because this structure is flawed. so true. It's sobering. I, I mentioned last week there's that great video on YouTube where Peter Schiff goes down on Wall Street during the Occupy Wall Street movement and he's having these very rational, lucid conversations with some pretty animated people. And they're all utterly convinced that this had been a, a crisis of capitalism, and this was capitalism doing all this to people. And he kept trying to explain to people that this wasn't capitalism; like this was something else. This was the collusion between between politics and wealth, and it was extraordinary, and really fascinating to watch. I, I say that because listening to you, I'm like, yeah, this this ain't capitalism. Like when the downside risks are backstopped, then. It must encourage the kind of bubbles that you've dedicated your life to, to studying. So let me ask is I want to send as many people as possible over to to you guys at McIlvany Wealth Management. I think the work you're doing with that tactical short stuff is really important. But talk to us about what you think people should be doing. I'll preface it by saying I, I sold a lot of positions and sat a lot of cash on the sidelines in terms of equity markets i stayed in gold etfs and i stayed in physical gold and silver and i sold crypto early too early tragically early what do you think people can be doing to insulate themselves or protect themselves from what's coming what top level you know suggestions would you make for people to be thinking about who are listening to us today sure A seemingly easy question. It's not
1: an easy environment because this is a mania and everybody is compelled to participate in in the stock market, in the securities markets. You're almost crazy if you don't. We think in a mania, everybody's kind of crazy participating. No, it seems completely rational today to put your retirement, to put your savings into the stock market because it always goes up. Any temporary pullback, central bankers will take care of it and it'll go up. So you don't have to worry, okay? I think there's a lot to worry about. So to me, I would reduce my exposure to the risk markets, and that's equities, that's corporate credit. I don't like long-term bonds, treasuries, corporate credit at all. I don't like getting zero return on my cash, but I, I think in this environment, I'll, I'll take that as part as a part of my barbell approach. For me, I, I'm a big fan of the precious metals, big fan. and. For my inflation hedge, I'm comfortable in real estate as an inflation hedge also. But for most of us, I think we just want to get our financial house in order and get psychologically ready to to deal with the adversity. We're warmed up now after the past year in COVID. So I think COVID kind of gave us a a test run for how we need to be prepared for all types of situations. So I say pay down debt, save as much as you can, limit your exposure to the markets and I think and this sounds a little strange. spend more time with nature, more time outside, and gaining you know better appreciation for the simple things in life, music, good books and and just being we don't want to be surprised when this blows up, and maybe it's this year, maybe it's a few years,
0: but we don't want to be surprised by it, so there's a lot of things we can do to be prepared, yeah. It's interesting you mention about the emotional, psychological well-being. I, I talk about the blessings of COVID and when the lockdown, you know, our lockdown here was a bit different. You could have small numbers of people uh, in your house and stuff. And I had a bunch of guys, like two or three friends that we just became so much closer. Just the mm-hmm. time of actually, you couldn't be racing around doing everything. and. You just start to say, it's great to reconnect and deepen relationships and friendships. And in terms of anthropology, that's what we are as a species. We're an extremely social species. And maybe some of this resetting and change that's coming will help us to value that a little bit more. All right. So last thing is just a bit of a summary here. I just want to read this quote and I'll put this up in the notes as well. I guess it's a great way for you to give us a summary of things. You wrote on dollar collapse. You said markets have. No, no, we've done that one. So it's this quote. I love this. This was from March 12 again. Your weekly commentary, and uh, everybody's listening. You want to go get that whiskey? Do it now. He says it's it's my opinion that the world is in the terminal phase of history's greatest credit bubble. It's my opinion that U.S. and global equities markets are historic speculative bubbles fueled by runaway monetary inflation, and acute monetary disorder. It's my opinion that markets in US stocks, cryptocurrencies, corporate credit and derivatives have evolved into full-fledged manias. It's certainly my opinion that this all ends very badly. Any final comments for us, Doug? Anything else we should be thinking about? My thoughts go back to Von Mises, the Austrian school
1: and Mises, he talked about these credit booms. They would end with just the melt up, the crack up boom. The crack up boom, yeah. The crack up boom. And, And unfortunately, when I look at the data, the Fed's balance sheet, the, the the system credit data, Chinese data, I just have that feeling that that's the crack up boom scenario that, you know, that's a terrible place to be. But I'll also say, I hope that I'm too dire. I hope people think back to this interview and, and laugh at me for being silly and stupid and wrong. I, I Nothing would make me happier than to be wrong. I've got a 12-year-old son. I'm happy to wear the dunce cap and, and be be the butt of jokes. I'd be pleased with that.
0: That is so good. I have said that so many times, like... I said to my wife maybe a thousand times in the last 18 months, I want to be wrong. I want to be wrong. I want to be yeah. wrong. And when my friends, you know, like my, my, my attitude to precious metals, I said, hey, look, the worst case, I just pass on some intergenerational wealth. Best case, gold goes to the moon. And so, yeah, I we call it the dismal science for a reason, right? Like there's, <laughs> there's uh, have you heard of perma bears? Have you heard that term? Oh, I hate that term. Oh, no, I know, I only heard it the first time the other day, and I was on a training ride and I thought, am I? Am I a perma bear? Am I a perma bear? <laughs> it's just, but I think, I often joke, Mike Kendall, who's a great friend, writes Man on the Margin blog, he's an airline pilot as well, flies for uh, American Airlines, and I joked with him the other day, I said, we're conditioned to believe that optimism is the ideal state. And I said, but you, you don't actually want an optimistic airline pilot. You don't. You want a pe- you want a pessimist. <laughs> you want uh, th- there are definitely times in life where we we want to be more focused on what could potentially go wrong. In all seriousness, I want to thank you for your work. I, I've come across and started to read your stuff, and the level of analysis that you do, I think you're doing something really important for people and. So for listeners, we want to get you across to to the Credit Bubble Bulletin. If you just look for Credit Bubble Bulletin, you're going to just find Doug's amazing work there, and we'll put in some links, uh, of course, over to management as well, Doug. I don't know if anybody tells you this, but thanks for what you're doing. It's really important work, and uh, let's pray that we're all wrong. Hey, everybody. Jonathan back with you again. How good was that, huh? It's one of those things that I hope you will listen to a couple of times because there was just so much in that. We also got cut off there at the very end. Doug was gracious enough to just share a little bit more with us, but I think in the time that we had, you really got the essence of the thesis that he's sharing with us. So make sure, as I said at the start in the intro, you go and check out Credit Bubble Bulletin and just type in credit bubble bulletin you'll find Doug's work there. Join that newsletter. It is just rock solid. And you can also, if you want to find out more about uh, Doug's current work with the the stuff that he's doing at McIlvaney Wealth Management, go and find those guys, McIlvaney Wealth Management. I'll put some links in the show notes here so you can click across there, but go and check that out too. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed it, huh? It's just such a privilege to listen to somebody who's really been at the forefront of studying credit bubble issues for decades and the wisdom and insight that he's bringing us I hope is a real reminder that things are really in, in an unusual state and we all need to be as prepared as we possibly can. I hope you like that point in the interview where I said the basis of supply side is that when men and women produce useful, viable, needed goods and services, then economies flourished. And I really like the part about the middle class I think I really believe in my DNA that without a strong middle-class culture's really polarize quickly and we end up in all sorts of trouble and I think you'll agree we're seeing some of that now so let's get this message out there if you would be so good as to subscribe to this podcast if you want to get the regular updates come across to supplysidepartners.com and uh, make sure you've there's plenty of places to sign up there and we can get these to you each time they come out otherwise you'll of course find us on every podcast player just do a search for the supply side podcast but I'd love you to subscribe and share this with other people if you're a social media user please grab these links and post them on your feeds that would be a huge blessing all right friends that's it from me big thanks once again to doug nolan for just such a great discussion i really appreciated his time and we're going to have more wonderful guests in the weeks ahead so make sure you stay tuned all right friends god bless my name is jonathan doyle this has been the supply side podcast and i'll have another message for you very soon